And so this is another figure illustrating uh, the effects of uh, the RAS. And so you see angiotensin 2 is here and the site of action of angiotensin 2. So if you block the receptor of those site of action, you block the effect. So those drugs directly bind to the receptor of angiotensin 2 compared to the angiotensin 2 convert, uh, the ACE inhibitor where they bind to the enzyme that is responsible for the synthesis of angiotensin II. The result is the same, but the mechanism of action um, is different. So the result, relax the smooth muscle, promote vasodilation, reduce the aldosterone release, and increase the renal uh, sodium and water exp expression just because those uh, angiotensin receptor blockers block the action of angiotensin to their receptor. The drug, so that's for that's one of the drugs that Alessandro was mentioning. So that's one of them that you were on. Okay, so it's not uh, listed on this one, but um, so these RRBs are the ten: so losartan, candesartan, eprosartan. Um, the prototype was losartan, and uh, they have a higher cost, <laughs> as he said. And they are reserved for patients who has uh, who develop uh, the cough with the ACE inhibitor enzyme. Yeah. When you talk about the prototype, what's the significance of that? Does that mean that's the first drug of that class that was discovered and approved by the FDA? Right. So, like the pharmaceutical company made a lot of money out of yeah. it and they patented, and then. But most of the time, those prototypes has more adverse effect, and then other pharmaceutical company started okay. to make their own and make them, you know, more potent, more selective, less adverse so effect. That's, that's the importance, I guess. Then that the prototype would have more. Yeah, allergy. like for example, Prozac, you know, was the prototype oh, of the SSRI right. and Absolutely. Pfizer made, yeah. you know, million. And even after the pharmaceutical company produced, you know, similar drugs, they didn't make as much profit as <laughs> the one who discover like a new class of drug, you know. Same thing for Alzheimer's, if somebody, you know, discover a drug modifying disease for Alzheimer's, that's why there is such, you know, competition for it, but so far, unfortunately, nothing is working. Um, indication, they are indicated for hypertension, but also MI, cardiac heart failure, and prevention. In of stroke in patient with high risk of cardiovascular disease. So again, patient who has hypercholesterol. Um, adverse effect, they are well tolerated. You don't have the cough problem because they don't act on the bradykinin levels. Um, Angioedema, it's rare, can cause renal failure, but it's also rare and can cause hyperkalemia. The interaction is due to their additive effects. So if a patient is on a combo, you have the you know uh, additive effect of those um, antihypertensive um, effect, and then you may need to reduce the dosage of one or the other just to avoid um, a severe hypertensive effect. Now, what are the warnings for those uh, ACE inhibitor and ARB? So the one that are acting on the RAS system. Um, 
you give a reduced starting dose because of that effect that I mentioned that some patient can have hypotension so you want to start with the lower dose possible and see if there is an effect on the blood, on the blood uh, pressure. Uh, especially patients who are also taking a diuretic and an elderly patient who are more sensitive uh, to those drugs. Since they may cause hyperkalemia, this has to be uh, you know, administered carefully to patients who has uh, chronic kidney disease or patients who are on another medication that can increase uh, the potassium level, such as the potassium sparing diuretic or the aldosterone antagonist can cause acute kidney uh, failure. Um, so that's why patients who already have uh, chronic kidney disorder, uh, those drugs has to be used with uh, very caution. And then there are absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy. And I have a slide at the end, hopefully we'll have time to get to the point talking about um, hypertension that is caused by pregnancy and preeclampsia, which is different from a patient who has hypertension, um, and what drugs are safe to uh, be used during pregnancy. Since we have, you know, a lot of female here, and maybe some of you have hypertension and are concerned <laughs> for the future. Um, and then renin inhibitors. So that's a new class of drug. There is only one, uh, one of those. So instead of acting on the angiotensin II, this drug acts directly on renin. So I said renin converts an, uh, angiotensinogen to uh, angiotensin one. So this one is a renin um, inhibitor. You see it's recent, it was approved in 2007. It's known as tecturinol, and so block the inhibition, the conversion of angiotensinogen to angiotensin one. It's FDA approved as a monotherapy or as a combination with other drugs. Uh, efficacy was demonstrated with other uh, antihypertensive drugs, so clinical trials have shown that they are uh, effective as a monotherapy but also uh, as combination therapy. Yeah? Um, when you say that it's combined with other Combination, yeah. <laughs> um, you wouldn't combine it with one of the angio uh, tensin tensin. Ones, right? Just what's the point if it's, you know, Just to potentiate Would you do it with the diuretic? Yeah, so the, the, there was some papers so, showing that yeah. they are used with ACE inhibitors or ARB. Again, one might not be enough and they need more than one, uh, more than one drug to, you know, achieve the goal. Yeah. No, it's related to the renin-angiotensin. Like all the drugs that are affecting the renin-angiotensin system are teratogenic. So like all the ACE inhibitor, all the ARBs, uh, the renin, they are contraindicated. Everything that affects the renin-angiotensin uh, system. Yeah. They used to be approved for second and third trimester, right? How long did it take them to figure out? Yeah, I guess until they saw, you know, like birth defects and... Because, you know, again, there is no clinical trial in pregnant women, and the only thing that, you know, drugs, they try it in, in animals, so they probably haven't seen, you know, much in animals until, uh, yeah. Um, so this one does not block the bradykinin breakdown, such as the ARBs. 
so they don't have uh, the cough like the ACE inhibitor uh, are doing. Orthostatic hypotension, so same as for the ACE inhibitors and uh, the ARBs and hyperkalemia. Again, contraindicated in pregnancy for what I just mentioned. Now, calcium channel blocker. So this is the class of drug that now Alessandro is taking. <laughs> it's good we have a full... Uh, <laughs> um, there are three different chemical classes of calcium channel blockers. The first one, they are known as the dihydropyridine, and the prototype was uh, nifedipine. Then you have the new one, amlodipine. So these are the dipine drugs. And then you have two other uh, calcium channel blockers that are not related by their chemical uh, structure, such as verapamil and diltiazem. So all of those uh, agents are calcium channel blockers. But the difference is that verapamil and diltiazem, they are acting not only on the vasculature, but they also have an effect on the heart. And that's what I have here on the mechanism of action slide. So all agents, because they are calcium channel blockers, they are blocking the calcium channels, and those calcium channels are involved in the contraction. So when the depolarization occurs, the calcium channel uh, open, you have a massive entry of calcium, and then induces the contraction. So if that happens on your vessel, if you have a vasoconstriction, you have an increase of the blood pressure. If you block those uh, voltage-gated channels, you just uh, induce the opposite effect, and you have a relaxation of the peripheral uh, vasculature. And each agent is going to produce a different degree of vasodilation. So actually, the dihydropyridine are more potent uh, in inducing vasodilation. And we'll see when we talk about angina that those drugs are used for the treatment of angina pectoris. The verapamil and the diltiazem they are acting on the vasculature, but they have an effect on the heart. And you know, in the heart, same thing, you have those voltage-gated channels. They're inducing the contraction. And if you block them, they are going to reduce the contraction. They're also going to reduce the rhythm. So verapamil diltiazem can be used for the treatment of uh, arrhythmia. Reduce the heart rhythm, reduce the AV conduction, and reduce the force of contraction. So again, what is the difference? These two are acting on the heart, and they have an effect on the heart rate. The dihydropyridine, they are only acting on the vasculature. But they are blocking the voltage-gated channel. Um, adverse effects, uh, dihydropyridine, they can cause dizziness, headache, flushing, and then that reflects tachycardia, because they are acting essentially on the vasculature. If you are induced a vasodilation, you can induce, uh, you're going to stimulate the baroreceptor and have that uh, reflex tachycardia. Uh, this can be avoided by uh, associating nifedipine with a beta blocker because the beta blocker are going to act on the rhythm, and so you can block um, the arrhythmia by giving a calcium channel blocker with a beta blocker. Verapamil and diltiazem, because they have those effects on the heart, the adverse effects are going to also be uh, related to their cardiac effects. So because they slow down the heart rate, you can have bradycardia, you can have an AV block, and then they also have a uh, negative inotropic 
uh, inotropic effects, so that I mean reduce the, the force of contraction of the heart, and they can exacerbate heart failure. Next week, Dr. Chef is going to talk about heart failure, and she's going to go into detail uh, with this. Verapamil can cause constipation, and then other are also dizziness, headache, and fatigue. What are the indications? So for the dihydropyridine, of course, it's hypertension, and as I said, angina pectoris. And for the one who also have an effect on the heart, they can be used uh, for cardiac dysarrhythmia. Now, when you make your table, make sure that you know which one is used for tachycardia and which one is going to use for angina pectoris, if there is a question on calcium channel blockers, mm -hmm. for example. <laughs> um, in terms of their efficacy, they are effective in 60% of the patient. Uh, they are effective in all demographic group and all grades, so stage one, stage two hypertension. Um, they are preferable to beta blockers and ACE inhibitor in African American and elderly. In combination with the diuretic, they are less, le less effective than a beta blockers and an ACE inhibitor. And then now you have long-acting calcium uh, channel blockers that have been shown also to reduce uh, stroke and uh, other cardiovascular uh, morbidity and mortality. Advantages with those long-acting uh, calcium channel blockers, you only take them once a day. Is it what you get, or you have? Once a day. Yeah. Which ones are those? The what? Which ones are those? Uh, any of them, no, they have like long-acting. It's just the way, if you remember the first week principle, is like those microsphere that has different size, and they can just be released at different times. So um, this is more like a formulation rather than their half-life. Um, beta-1 adrenergic, also known as beta-blockers. So there was some question on the test. <laughs> uh, so it's also one of the most widely used uh, antihypertensive drugs. They've been on the market for a long time. Um, they are cheap, um, especially the older one, like propanolol, for example. Um, they are more effective in young Caucasian patients, and they are effective in 50% of the population. So most of the drugs, they are effective in 50 to 60%, and so that's why it's hard, again, to control uh, the blood pressure, and sometimes patient has to go back and forth and try different uh, classes of drugs. What is their mechanism of action if they are beta blockers? Who can tell me? <laughs> Which type of receptors? If they are selective, they block the beta-1. If they are non-selective, they are going to block beta-1 and beta-2. And the adverse effect of that is bronchospasm, asthma uh, type of uh, adverse effect. Then you also have the one that have an alpha effect. And some that has their uh, intrinsic activity, so that means they are antagonists, but they have some agonist effects. So everything was already, you know, discussed on week one. But I'm going to have that slide again on uh, <laughs> coming up. So they bind to the alpha, uh, the beta one receptor, and the non-selective one, as I said, they can also bind to beta two or alpha receptor, and so they are going to reduce uh, the heart rate. 
They are also going to reduce the, the contractility. They have an inotropic effect. They can also, it's not really understood how, but they reduce the peripheral resistance and the uh, uh, renin uh, release. So they're going to reduce uh, the blood volume. So they have that, you know, prominent effect on the heart, but they also have um, an effect on um, the peripheral resistance and on the renin uh, release. They have different uh, pharmacological properties. So as I said, the one that are non-selective has both beta-1, beta-2, propranol. Uh, the one that are cardioselective, so I'm going to have less um, long adverse effect. They are not going to cause a bronchospasm. But then again, this is uh, the cardioselectivity is dose dependent. So if you increase the dose, then you can lose the cardioselectivity. So that means no beta blocker is totally safe in patients with COPD or asthma. Intrinsic sympathetomimetic activity, so that means they have that intrinsic activity. Not only they are a blocker, but they are also agonists. So they can you know, um, balance the adverse effects that are induced by uh, blocking the receptor. And then you have the mixed action, so the one that has an effect on alpha but also on beta uh, receptors. And actually, carvedilol has been shown to reduce the mortality um, in patients with systolic heart failure that are treated with a diuretic and an ACE. And so again, next week, Dr. Sheff, she will go over the drugs that are used for cardiac heart failure, the combination. So you will see those drugs uh, next week. So. If you have time, you know, just review this slide, and so next week is going to be easier for you to uh, understand the lecture. And then because they have an effect on the alpha receptor, they can produce more uh, orthostatic hypotension. So remember, the alpha receptor on the vessel, if they block <laughs> the receptor on the vessel, then they are going to induce uh, hypotension. These are your store drugs. Uh, I think there was a question on acebutolol. It was a true and false question, asking if it was a selective agent or was it carvedilol. The answer was no. It was. Uh, it has a, I think it was carvedilol because it has beta and alpha receptor uh, activity. The question was about beta, beta selectivity. And so this is a table, you don't have to know those values, but just show you it's another way also if you have a more visual uh, memory. So here you have the selectivity. So you see acetylol and atenolol has a beta-1 selectivity. Propanolol, carbidilon has no uh, beta-1 selectivity because either they block beta-1, beta-2, or beta and alpha. Do they have a partial agonist activity, which means they have um, the intrinsic activity? So you see acetyl, yes, it has an intrinsic activity. So maybe it's easier for some of you to remember that table rather than seeing the previous slide. And then the rest, you don't really have to. Yeah, you see some has a high, um, high lipid solubility. What is the consequence of this? blood-brain barrier, and so we'll see that the adverse effects, some can cause CNS adverse effects, 
and those can cause adverse effects are the ones that are high, at the high uh, lipid solubility. solubility. Then you see the half-life. Um, only carbidilol is a longer half-life, so that means less frequent uh, administration, but propanolol has to be administered like three times a day because of the short uh, half-life. Indication, so hypertension, angina, MI, antiarrhythmic, migraine, we talked about it uh, last quarter when we talked about, or was it this quarter? Yeah. This quarter. <laughs> uh, about drug that can be used to prevent uh, migraine, not to treat the migraine episode, but more preventing the occurrence of migraine. And then glaucoma was also part of week one. Adverse effect. So you can deduce those adverse effects from their mechanism of action. Because they are acting on the heart, they are going to reduce the heart rate so they can cause bradycardia. They can also cause AV uh, block, uh, precipitate or worsen heart failure. They can induce a bronchospasm if they are non-selective and bind to the beta-2 receptor. Sexual impairment, again, is it due to the drug or more to the pathology? Um, CNS symptoms, so those that are uh, lipid-soluble, they can um, induce depression, fatigue, nightmare, confusion, and in extreme case, uh, cases, hallucination. Um, they can also increase the serum glucose, so that means they can uh, worsen uh, diabetes. So these are contraindicated uh, in patients with diabetes because of their hyperglycemic uh, effect and increase the plasma triglyceride and reduce the HDL cholesterol. This is also transient effect, so not so much of a concern for a patient who has a hypercholesterol, hypertriglyceride, because it's not going to last. It's more at the beginning of the treatment. Severe allergy is rare, but that can happen with uh, propranolol. And then abrupt discontinuation may cause reborn hypertension because it's an antagonist. You know, the body is just reacting. You block the receptor, you block the receptor, and they become hypersensitive. When you stop it, your receptor are gonna, you know, respond so much, then it can cause uh, reborn hypertension. So are they tapered off? Yes. And you know, most of the time, those patients they are going to be on the beta blocker for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, <coughs> alpha one receptor adrenergic uh, antagonist. We also talk about those during week one. So the alpha one receptor are only located on the blood vessels. So if you give uh, alpha one receptor antagonist, you are going to promote vasodilation. And you can go back to your slide with all the mechanism of action of drugs and see the alpha-1 receptor on the blood vessel. So um, block the alpha-1 receptor, depress the activity of uh, the ANS, and then uh, antagonize the action of norepinephrine. Uh, then promote dilation of the arterial and the vein. They are also used for the treatment of BPH, and there was also a question that was a true and false, but it was asking if it was an agonist or an antagonist, and I think it was false because it's, it was an agonist instead of antagonist. So 
these drugs are antagonists, anti-alpha-1, they are blockers. Um, Flomax, that was the question. So it was about Flomax. And Flomax is selective for the prostate smooth muscle, so it reduces uh, the pressure um, on the smooth muscle of the prostate. And then an agent that is used for the treatment of hypertension is prazosin. So here you see the ending is also similar, prazosin, doxazosin, tamsulosin, um, these are the alpha-1 blocker. And <clears throat> this figure illustrates how the uh, alpha, like the release of uh, neurotransmitters, so in that case, norepinephrine is regulated at a synapse where you have your smooth muscle and then the nerve terminal. So you have the release of norepinephrine that can bind to the alpha-1 receptor, and then we're going to induce vasoconstriction. If you block that receptor, you promote vasodilation. Now, your body, you know, responds to that release of the neurotransmitter, and if there is enough neurotransmitter in the synaptic cleft, just going to tell, okay, no more, I have enough, and uh, norepinephrine is going to bind to the alpha-2. And so alpha-2 agonists are going to mimic the effect of norepinephrine by stopping the release of norepinephrine. So on, on a certain way, they are just uh, acting as an antagonist because they stop the release of the neurotransmitter, but they stop the release by activating the receptor. So for the treatment of hypertension, alpha-1 <laughs> receptor antagonist, but alpha-2 receptor agonist are also used for the treatment of hypertension. Um, so for the alpha-1 receptor, um, alpha-adrenergic inhibitors, you can have, uh, so they are used for the treatment of hypertension and um, BPH. They are not appropriate for, uh, as a monotherapy, they are more like an add-on therapy to um, a diuretic, especially to uh, minimize the edema. If a patient has swollen legs, you can uh, give them to minimize, uh, you give a diuretic to minimize the edema uh, with, you know, treat them with that drug, but it's an add-on uh, therapy to the thiazide. And then BPH. There are adverse effects because they are acting on the vessel. They can cause orthostatic hypotension because you have a massive vasodilation. And so um, this is why the first dose is recommended to be given at bedtime. Because then the patient you know, is going to sleep and won't have uh, that adverse effect. Um, now it can also be minimized if you tell the patient you know, to go slowly when they switch from a patient, you know, uh, like laying down to a sitting position or you know, standing up. Uh, this adverse effect can be uh, minimized. And then because of that massive uh, hypotension, you also have reflex tachycardia just to compensate and restore the blood pressure. So usually orthostatic hypotension and reflex tachycardia are associated. Salt and water retention and then sync up at first dose in extreme case because of that hypotension, they can also have uh, dizziness and sync up. Yeah. Does the also have their the ACE inhibitors because of that initial hypotension or is... No, 
that is merged because ACE inhibitor is a different mechanism of action. So this one is like really acting directly on the vessel. Versus, you know, ACE inhibitor, like a step, okay, you block the synthesis of aldosterone, then, you know, you block its vasoconstrictive effect. But this one is like straight on the, on the vessel, on the receptor that are on the vessel. Uh, some has an anticholinergic adverse effect and then nasal congestion. So anti-decongestant, they are alpha-1 agonists. These are antagonists, so if they have systemic effect, they can you know, constrict the vessel in the nose and induce nasal congestion. And that's why also patients who are using uh, nasal decongestant is contraindicated in patients who has hypertension. Even the spray? Even the spray, and the elderly, I would say, especially, yeah. No, centrally acting agent, alpha-2 agonist, so I just explained why an alpha-2 agonist can be used for the treatment of uh, hypotension. So make sure to understand you know, the difference between alpha-1 antagonists that act on the receptor that are on the smooth muscle, and the alpha-2 receptor are on the, on the neuron, on the nerve part. Um, so they are activating the alpha-2 receptor that are on the nerve, and by doing that, they just block the release of more uh, neurotransmitter and some release of norepinephrine. If you reduce the amount of norepinephrine, instead of causing vasoconstriction, you promote vasodilation. Also reduce the heart rate and the cardiac output. Methyldopa and clonidine. So clonidine, we saw it for the treatment of opioid addiction and the withdrawal syndrome. And methyldopa, uh, I have it there because it can be used um, in pregnancy. Um, indication is the first line agent for uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension. Uh, that means it's not preeclampsia. Uh, the difference with preeclampsia is that not only they have high blood pressure, but they have protein uremia. You know, you can have a woman who is pregnant and develops hypertension, and then this agent has been, you know, known for a long time, and they can be prescribed for a woman who develops uh, hypertension because they are non-teratogenic. Uh, and clonidine is used for the treatment of resistant hypertension. So in general, those two agents, they are used for uh, patients who are with refractory hypertension. Only for a pregnant woman, methyldopa is going to be uh, the first choice. But in any case, those drugs are drug of choice for as a first-line agent for the treatment of hypertension, and especially clonidine, due to the high uh, side effect profile. Uh, and as I said, they're also used for the treatment of withdrawal syndrome um, in opioid-addicted uh, patients. Adverse effect, because they are acting centrally, they can cause uh, CNS depression, dry mouth, um, and then rebound hypertension uh, also uh, because of the, uh, again, you block the release of the neurotransmitter, so you can have that rebound uh, hypertension when you stop abruptly. So that's why patients who are on clonidine, they have to taper down uh, the dose. Um, 
So they are more effective if they are used with a diuretic, used with caution in elderly patients because of the side, side effect profile. And then there is that trans, uh, transdermal uh, patch that is used weekly. And with that patch, the thing is because of the delayed onset, the patient has to start with an oral preparation just to reach the maximum, uh, like the minimum effective dose. And once um, the drug uh, has reached, you know, is minimal effective dose, then the patient is only uh, on the patch. And there is fewer uh, adverse effects, and also uh, you don't have that, um, you don't have a high peak of serum drug concentration, and you don't have those problem with withdrawal and with rebound uh, hypertension. Adrenergic neuron blocking agent. These are just for your information because they are not, uh, you know, they are not widely used. And it's just, again, drugs that can be prescribed if a patient is not responding to all of those agents that we just talked about. And it just acts centrally in the synthesis of the of the neurotransmitter. Uh, now you have the direct arterial vasodilator. So we talked about agent that binds to the receptor on the vessel, and now you have those that has just an effect on the smooth muscle, just because of the molecule just produced a vasodilating effect. Doesn't have to bind to uh, doesn't have to bind to your receptor. Just um, dilate the arterial and has uh, no effect on the vein. Um, so they produce peripheral vasodilation, and then um, they can increase the heart rates and uh, the um, cardiac contractility just because of the activation of the baroreceptor. So it's just a reflex. And the drugs, um, hydralazine and minoxidil. I have them here too because, so hydralazine is used for the treatment of preeclampsia uh, in pregnant women. And minoxidil, you probably heard about it, not as an anti-hypertensive drug, but for, <laughs> yeah. Rogaine. Rogaine, yeah. So for uh, male who are uh, losing hair, there is a topical preparation that can be applied and because one of the adverse effects is hirsutism, so that means just regrow of uh, the hair. Is that the one pregnant women aren't supposed to touch? Uh, Regain? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, so adverse effects, salt and water retention, reflex tachycardia because of the mechanism of action. Uh, vascular headache, same thing, because they are, you know, promoting vasodilation, so they can cause uh, vascular headache. And then lupus-like syndrome, so these are one, like hydralazine can cause that uh, lupus-like syndrome. You see they have that lupus uh, face. And hirsutism, so that's an adverse effect, but in some case can be used uh, for the treatment of alopecia. But this is just like, it's used for the treatment of uh, alopecia as a topical, so it's applied directly uh, to the roots or the remaining uh, root bulb compared to this drug that is used for hyper hypertension and is an oral uh, preparation. So this is a summary, major classes of vasodilators. So also when you do your table, try to, you know, 
make the distinction between drugs that are acting on the vessel and the ones that are acting on, uh, on the heart. So these are all different types of drugs that can um, have a vasodilating effect. And nitrate, we'll talk about them when we talk about the treatment of angina pictures. And now this slide is just a summary of everything. <laughs> And it's more about, you know, like the, the treatment, and I already mentioned this, but it's just another way to present uh, the thing. So first step is lifetime modification. This might be sufficient with a, for a patient who has prehypertension, but lifestyle modification is not going to be enough for a patient who has stage 1 or stage 2. Um, Hypertension. So, depending if the patient has a compelling or a non or not uh, compelling indication or non-compelling indication, stage one or stage two. So, if it's stage one, thiazide diuretic. Other alternative that we discuss, and if it's stage two, it's two a combination of two. If it's compelling, I have a table uh, after this. If the blood pressure is not at goal with that, uh, you know, first step then you either substitute so the thiazide to another drug or you increase the dose. If it's not enough, then you're gonna add and you keep you know, increasing the dose or switching or adding to another. Um, so and then again, this is the step therapy. So um, you have diuretic. If it doesn't work, you increase the dose of the first drug or you substitute another drug or you add a second drug. If it's not enough, then you add a third one. And if it's not enough, then you add uh, even a fourth uh, drug. And this is, you know, of course, the cardiologist who is going to determine um, all this. And the most important thing for you is really counseling the patient, especially when they are discharged from the hospital, and, you know, make sure that the patient not only understand, you know, the therapy, but the disease and the importance of being compliant with the therapy. So these are the, you know, like for your information, patient with diabetes, an ACE inhibitor is better than a thiazide uh, diuretic. Patient with coronary uh, artery disease, a beta blocker is preferred uh, to a thiazide. Um, post MI beta blocker, and then they add an ACE inhibitor because it reduces the risk of developing another uh, MI. So these are just examples to show you how, how it works. But for my class, you have to know like the general <laughs> thiazide as first line and then how the step therapy you know, uh, works. And now in, um, I think we still have a couple of minutes. So hypertension is preg in pregnancy, as I said, is important to differentiate. Uh, hypertension that was induced by the pregnancy and that needs to be treated over the term, you know, over the pregnancy. You don't want to leave the woman with hypertension. And so, um, in that case, methyldopa is the drug, drug of choice, but an alternative can be a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. Now, if the <coughs> pregnant woman has preeclampsia, this is a severe condition. So that means the, the blood pressure is higher than 140 over 90, and she also has uh, protein urea. And in that case, uh, she has to uh, be like, uh, you know, bed rest, uh, 
sole restriction and then uh, close monitoring. And if the ultimate uh, treatment is actually to induce labor if uh, the blood pressure is not monitored. Um, and then in that case, they only they induce delivery, but they can also give high V of uh, hydralazine because the blood pressure can be like uh, not be under control, and you don't want uh, the woman to die. So, so Dr. Sokolo, so they reduce the blood pressure at the same time they induce labor. If you know, if they see that they cannot reduce the blood pressure, that's what they do. Yeah. That's why they give the IV. Yeah, the IV is when they induce the labor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen any tippany during your uh, rotation, preeclampsia? Yeah. Uh, and so again, this is for your information. These are all the drugs that can be used for hyper, uh, yeah, hypertension in pregnancy. Uh, hypertensive crisis. It's another you know emergency situation, and I have the slide there. It's also you know for uh, your information. These are the drugs that can be used for hypertensive uh, emergency, but these are, you know, emergency situation and it's not something that you're going to see, you know, on a regular basis compared to the chronic treatment of uh, hypertension. Oh, yeah, and this I just wanted to mention about it. Um, you know, we probably have concern regarding uh, the efficacy of a generic versus the brand name. And so there was a paper that was published uh, in JAMA in 2008 showing that actually there is no benefit of using a brand name versus a generic. And so they review um, seven, uh, so a total of 38 uh, random clinical trials were reviewed. And so all of them um, showed that there was a clinical equivalency uh, for the beta blockers, 91% show the equivalency for the diuretic, 71% show the equivalency for the calcium channel blockers, and then ACE inhibitors. So no superiority of the brand name for the treatment of hypertension. Now, among the 43 editorial, you know, that's interesting is that they were like counseling again, so probably is it a pressure from the pharmaceutical company to, you know, push uh, the brand name versus the generic because the editor were just uh, considering, again, even if the data shows that there was no, um, no superiority of the brand name. And then, again, summary, um, you know, like the goal, of course, you know, the decision to initiate the treatment is the overall cardiovascular risk. Uh, you know, a patient who has hypertension is a higher risk of, you know, having a heart attack, so, uh, it's important to consider the risk and um, to select the agent based on the, on the clinical evidence and consider if there is any uh, compelling indication. Um, and then this, that's what I said, this is a summary, which one works better. Uh, so it's, you know, through your lecture, but this is just a table showing which one is more effective in uh, young Caucasian or more, you know, African-American, so depending on your ethnicity, you can see uh, which one would be the best for you, or if you know people who are on those drugs, if, you know, this is the right drug uh, for them. And then this is really, you know, your role is to encourage uh, lifetime modification, be supportive to the patient, uh, educate them about, and their family, about uh, the disease, 
and maintain the communication, you know, make sure that they monitor their uh, blood pressure because most of the time also what happens is that they're going to take their medication before seeing their cardiologist. And then, you know, the rest of the time they said, oh, I'm fine, you know, it's just <laughs> my blood pressure is high, but I can live with it because they don't like to take something, you know, chronically. Once you are diagnosed with high blood pressure, if it's primary uh, hypertension, they have to be on drug for the rest of their life. So keeping expensive and simple, this is more for the prescriber, and then it's always better for them to have a once daily and a long acting formulation for the compliance. And then combination if they need uh, a combination, so if it's everything in one tablet, it's also better for their uh, compliance. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Physiologic system standpoint. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it ever better to say turn something off versus turn something on? To agonize or antagonize? Can, can that blanket statement be made? No. Okay. No. <laughs> it really depends on the condition and the disease. Yeah. And it's always like the risk versus the benefit of treating the, the disease.